Welcome to the archives of The Laura Lee Show, conversation for exploration, timeless discussions to challenge and expand our worldview. And while you may find our guests fascinating, the views expressed may not necessarily reflect those of our own or of the Kuimange Institute. That's why we call it conversation for exploration. And join in our ongoing live events, interviews, our own presentations, and much, much more as we go exploring. Learn more at kuiamungainstitute.com and lauralee.com. Welcome to Conversation for Exploration. Hi, I'm your host, Laura Lee. So how do you go about deciphering megalithic sites and reading petroglyphs and other markings on stone? Well, join us for a detective story. Our guests, Renaud de Jonga, he's a chemist and a teacher from Holland, and Jay Wakefield, who's a biologist from Kirkland, Washington, neighbor of ours here in Bellevue. They have written the book, How the Sun God Reached America in 2500 BC, A Guide to Megalithic Sites. And they'll share with us their attempts to decode these early sites, sites on both sides of the Atlantic, and to find connections between them. Welcome, Renaud. How Thank are you. you? Thank you very much. Yeah. And hello, Jay. Hello, Larry. Now, how did, uh, Renaud, let's start with you. You're yeah. a chemist. How did you start looking into megalithic sites and find this as a, a passion worth years of research and yeah, about 10 years ago, I was unemployed for uh, half a year or so, and I uh, read a newspaper, a Rotterdam newspaper, with, uh, uh, about Stonehenge, and um, I started to understand that, and uh, uh, that was the start of the whole thing, actually. Yeah. And so you thought, aha, I'm just going to figure this out, Stonehenge, and you found yeah. connections to the Americas in that. Uh, n- not yet, because uh, the old Stonehenge monument, well, the Stonehenge one, uh, shows uh, discoveries uh, in the e- in the northeastern Atlantic, uh, Iceland and Greenland. So not yet to America. And Jay, how did you get started, and how did you hook up with Renault? Uh, we were traveling on, in Brittany on the coast of France, and. Uh, it just happened that both Reno and I were both locked out of the Karnak Museum at lunchtime. <laughs> and so, so we struck up a conversation. Correct. Yeah. Right. And then we spent the most of the night uh, in the talking in the B&B and found that uh, the, the things that I had learned uh, here in America were fitting well with what he was doing uh, with British England uh, with European petroglyphs. Where did your passion for megalithic sites begin, Jay? <clears throat> Um, I've always been uh, uh, in, uh, interested in this subject. My father, uh, uh, from my father primarily, he gave a graduation address in 1932 at Westfield High School in New Jersey entitled "The Antiquity of Man in North America." Oh, so he's and he uh, grew up uh, uh, on Cape Cod and and uh, before it was a national park and. Uh, we dug up uh, many um, Indian sites. Um, in uh, south of Wellfleet and in various areas that are now National Park, and you can't do that anymore. But I grew up digging arrowheads all over the place with my father. So we've always been interested in this subject, uh, and uh, my whole life I've been reading things that he and I have found. And so I've been following this issue for a very long time. And, of course, I became uh, interested when when we read Barry Fell's book because he advanced this field quite a lot. And... Uh, then when I read Raynaud, I knew that I had struck something very interesting. So we've 
been collaborating together for the last four or five years. Well, you're speaking to a fellow diffusionist, because I, too, believe that cultures were crossing the oceans and trading and exchanging and leaving their mark all over the place. Um, tell me a little bit about the various sites that you've looked at and that you've correlated and found some connection between them. Yeah. In, you mentioned in, Stonehenge to begin. Yeah. Stonehenge, it started uh, with Stonehenge, and Stonehenge tells the, the story of uh, crossing the Atlantic until Greenland. They they gave up at the southwest cape of Greenland because uh, crossing Davis Strait is uh, is a difficult thing to do for these people, for these Now, this is a novel interpretation of Stonehenge. This uh, that's is, correct. This, this is a, your a, own original. New, yeah. It's just, uh, it's just so that, uh, that the five or six uh, big meniers in Stonehenge um, uh, show the... Um, uh, the various angles, and these angles are the latitudes of the sites they discovered. So first they discovered uh, from the north, uh, from the Orkney Islands, they discovered the Fairer Islands, which are on 62 degrees north. And then from there they discovered uh, about 3400 BC, um, the southeast coast of Iceland. And uh, and after that, uh, 3300 BC, they uh, discovered uh, the crossing of the Denmark Strait from the northwest uh, peninsula of Iceland to uh, Cape Holm, uh, Greenland, which is on the Arctic Circle. So you're suggesting that these menhirs, the big, large standing stones, were placed as a monument to mark various places that the people of Stonehenge went out and voyaged well, and discovered, at, and so they were placed at different at least, this, at least this is true for Stonehenge. I don't say that it is for all monuments or for all uh -huh. uh, uh, circles or whatever. Mm. But, but uh, one I, of the chapters in the book is in t is about Stonehenge, and of course it's about a thirty-two page article. What we have drawn, the Renault is talking about findings that have been determined by measuring angles between the stones at Stonehenge. So it's a mathematical decipherment. Mm -hmm. Raynaud's background is physical chemistry, which is very mathematical, and he has counted all these stones. It's quite remarkable, the mathematics that have background that has gone into this. And uh, what he has found is that angles of critical stones within Stonehenge, when it's carefully ground, the ground plan is carefully studied, uh, the angles are coincident with the actual latitudes of places. Now, those couldn't be considered to be accidental. Oh, I see. So they would have to have very early on a latitude and longitude grid system similar to our own, and that the placement of the stones would then correlate, uh, the angles of them between them would correlate with a grid system. So how early well, may, can we date that? Just may I interrupt sure, you for a short? Uh, it's only latitude in these uh, early days. Not longitude. No, okay. longitude was too complicated because these oh, you lines need a clock of, and the whole yeah, thing. the yeah. lines of longitude uh, uh, come together at the North Pole, and they found it uh, difficult uh, to handle with. So it's only latitude, uh -huh. also in the east-west direction. So, so it's a it is a grid system. That's correct. What you said, okay. but in the north, south, and east, west, they work with latitudes. So you can date latitudes back to the Egyptians. You do in your book. Um, yeah. You mentioned like one degree is sixty miles. That's correct. And so that's mm. an easy thing to come up with. You just need astronomical observations and to understand that the Earth rotates with the Sun, then creeping along in in yes. time and distance then have a nice measuring system 
yeah. with the Earth and the solar system. They had a nice measuring system, yeah. They uh, both, we, we called it uh, in the east-west direction, we called it distance lines. Mm -hmm. In the north-south direction, it's, it's ordinary uh, latitudes. And they also used, of course, sailing directions. These are also important, of course. When you How would they map out a sailing direction? Sailing direction is just, uh, is just the direction uh, uh, measured from... Uh, uh, Versus mm. an east-west direction, it's just the sailing direction. But the latitudes were more important uh, to them, and and these latitudes were especially found in the stones and in the, in the number of stones sometimes, or in. Uh, uh, How when you're looking at a set of stones and you're saying, okay, their alignment and the mathematics between them is a language that was used by these ancient people. Right. It's correct. How sure can you be what kind of cross-checking can you have that you're not just you know enamored with numbers and plugging them in where they aren't really there we, we, you had to have asked yourself that question oh yes of course uh, what what happened they had no uh, written language but they had their stories and these stories are in the monuments and we, we they repeat them over and over again so in stonehenge one you can see this this uh, um this route to the north to the to, to Greenland but it is repeated in for instance in Lokru what is in East Ireland and they repeat it in a different way as a as a uh, um, how's it called that language um, a pictographic mm. uh, in pictographs so in in uh, so this is fascinating that you that they repeat it so you can uh, you get check yeah they repeat it in the big sites in fact Laurie one of the sites in the book where we have a 35 page uh, one of the most dramatic chapters is about American Stonehenge in New Hampshire, and oh, we just had the the curator of that on. The uh, we've done an, an elaborate analysis. It's very it's very much a walk-in chart of the ocean. The angles are fantastic. Identify the angles. A walking of the, chart uh, of, of the ocean. It's a yeah. fantastic uh, site, and uh, the uh, Reynaud uh, did a lot of the initial work on most of the initial work on that in his dining room table in Holland, and. Uh, he said there should be a big men here at a particular site and where it was just a bend in the wall. But then he and I visited the site the following summer. Okay. And at that particular site, which he said is Cape Home and should have, that's where they discovered Greenland from Iceland and there should be a big monument here. According to all he knows and his Renault, uh, but of course they system took of decipherment, there should be. A third of the site what? away. A third of the stones were carted away. No, no, away. no. We can address that. But okay. the, but what I'm saying is we walked the site for the first time after he said in Holland, never having been to the site, that there should be a men here. here. We walked to the site because he was working with the ground plan. And when we got to the site, there's a 14-foot men here that had fallen over and broken and was not on the ground plan. So he identified, this is the first time in history anyone has ever corrected, cor properly corrected a megalithic site with never having seen it before from the other side of the earth. He arrived at the site. And this men here, he said, should be there, was there. No one has ever done anything like that before. Yeah. And that is uh, the, the yeah. predictive validity of the renal rules of decipherment. Yeah. Oh, you got its own name for this theory. Yeah. So, you know, it's hard for those of us who aren't that versed in mathematics to even imagine that this would be a, a language that would be manageable for for people. for these people, because not everybody's good at math, and so you're imagining a megalithic culture in which a few yeah. individuals are good at math, yeah. and then would devise this language, and then uh, go to a lot of trouble to cement this in stone. Yeah, they, uh, they, they told their stories in numbers. That's uh, that's great. They had no written language, 
They had no, uh, no, no if letters. If they're clever, why not a written language? We, Wouldn't that be because, easier for the rest of us? No, phonetic language was very hard. To get your sound down was difficult for humanity to do. But they were, we know they were very sophisticated in astronomy. Uh, principally, one of the principal monuments to that is the Temple of Dendera, the ceiling in the Louvre that Napoleon took to the Louvre. And um, it has a 26,000-year cycle of the zodiac. You know right, how the, the sun yeah. rises between the horns of spiral. Taurus on the east side, and and then you know, and these are lengthy cycles, and so we know that we're following things astronomically for a very long time, and for the from the design of the, we know their mathematics was uh, sophisticated. The, the, Wouldn't that, you need zero though to devise a math that worked? And do you think they had the you, concept? And you, you don't need you know, zero they? actually, but I, I I think they knew it, but I, they, you don't need it actually. The, the zero number. Yeah. But latitudes were easy for these people because, Raynaud, uh, all you do is move to the north or south for a certain distance, and a sun or a star will change by one degree. Right. Okay. And they, we call that distance today a nautical mile, is the distance of one degree. Um, in the old days. How much the Earth is rotating in a certain length of time, and you can measure it yes. in a geographical distance. That's okay. actually why Jefferson recommended to Congress that the United States not accept, accept the metric system, because he knew that ancient uh -huh. measures were related to time, and the English foot was not. Right. Okay. Now, <clears throat> what we have, uh, Professor Stiction at Harvard uh, says that, Sakini at Harvard, he's a professor of uh, science at Harvard. Uh, has said that the ancient Egyptian measure for one degree was called the Moira. Mm -hmm. Now, Raynaud, uh, has, we have used, called the distance a DL, or a D, he calls it a distance, distance line, line or a DL. Distance line one. Um, in the book, we frequently used 111 kilometers, which is uh, more familiar to Europeans that might read the book or to Americans to use English miles, and so we've mm -hmm. done that. But it probably, it would be proper in this study uh, in the future, to use uh, nautical miles, since there are sixty of them within a degree. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's let's say that the megalithic people were versant in mathematics; that they had even that far back, um, lots of years of astronomical observation. They had this grid, right. and they were gotten their boats and they sailed around. Uh, tell us what further evidence there was and why they would plant similar monuments and what these monuments say. Well, uh, um, it, it starts a very old monument, uh, 4500 BC. We, there is a monument uh, uh, where you can see that they discovered the Cape Verde Island just from counting the stones and from looking at the head axe of a passage grave. You know, passage grave is a is a burial chamber with a passage. Uh these are miglet builders. They build these of, of very big stones and and uh, uh, very big slabs on top. And just by counting the stones of the passage and counting the stones of the of of the burial grave, you can uh, you can see that they discovered the Cape Verde Islands, for instance. They have, uh, for instance, in the case of the tumulus of Kirkado, of the passage grave of Kirkado, there are fourteen big stones in the passage. What is the degree of latitude of Cape Verde? What is the western uh, point of all continental land in in uh, of the old world? And the the burial chamber con consists of nine big stones, which just correspond to the nine Cape Verde islands. It's that simple. It's not complicated. So from the from just from the number of stones, uh, you can see what what. Uh, 
it's that simple. You, you can just see what they discovered and what what was their focus. It is these these uh, these passage graves are are old churches. It's not it's, it, archaeologists call them passage grave, but they are in fact churches, and they are all point with their important burial chamber to the west. All in all, and they are all in Western Europe along the sea, on, along the shore. And these are kind of mission uh, mission churches, pre-Christian, of course. When and, you say mission church, what's yeah, the mission attached to them? Uh, the mission is is to reach the other side of the earth. Was was completely. So you're saying that was a them. religious process for them? Uh, that was also a religious process. How do you tie process. navigation and religion in? Uh, well, the religion, uh, the religion. Uh, is that um, very often you know almost always these uh, all these megalithic monuments have an a, also a religion site that is the the number twenty three is encoded in all megalithic uh, monuments of any importance. For instance, in this uh, Kirkado uh, passage grave, there are in total twenty three big stones which correspond to the latitude of the Tropic of Cancer, 23 degrees north. Now, and we happen to have our zero starting at Greenwich, England, right? Who's to say that they would start their zero so that the 23rd latitude would be? Or how does this work? That's, well, well, is that a legitimate is, question well, well, here? This is, the, these are important questions. What what happens is that um, I I also uh, wondered uh, if they use the same system as as we. I mean, there is no no uh, uh, necessity for this. And but how would we what, happen what, arbitrarily? But, but, to but listen, uh, what I saw, uh, Laura, is is that um, uh, there is a monument in Brittany where 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 is an angle of twenty three degrees. And there are exactly twenty-three stones around it, so they they himself indicate that that they use the same type of of counting, just like we. Actually, it is what we use is the traditional old old way of of measuring latitudes, which didn't start at five hundred BC, as almost everybody thinks, but it started at at least forty-seven hundred BC. What is more than four thousand years earlier? So as as soon as these these people sailed offshore, further mm-hmm. away uh, during the night or so, then they started to measure with lati- uh, latitudes and mm-hmm. to and keep and some to, sort of permanent map going, which you would s- I mean, primitive look, maps. Is, ocean going would take a whole industry. It would seem to me to support it. Yeah, that's and correct. therefore you would have some sort of standards. And therefore, you would have communication and some sort of permanent mapping. I mean, that all right. makes sense to me. Laura, yeah, right. the, the important thing about the 23 degrees is that's as far north as the sun goes. And then it goes back toward the south again. And this is a sun god religion. That's oh, a 6,000-year-old okay. religion. And they're wondering where the sun god goes over on the other side of the ocean. They know the earth is round. They're very sophisticated astronomically. But they don't know what's on the other side. And they think it's paradise or all these terms for you meet your relatives there. What happens to the sun god when he goes to the other side? A lot of about, yeah. So they're curious what's on the for For a long period of time, this was the goal of these people to find... To be curious, find out where the sun god goes and what's on the other side of the earth. That's the motivation for this. Seems like now, a reasonable quest. Now, now to get back to Greenwich, that is a long, that's the base for uh, longitude. 
Okay. And, that and we're just reasons. talking about latitude. Now, latitude just comes. All right. Yeah, thank you. So, and, and many people, of course, from you can your tell reading. I, I didn't do well in geography here. Many people know that, that longitude uh, is, a, you know, it's been set by the English at Greenwich, but it, people say, and uh, oh, longitude, there are others that say it's, be, it should have, uh, the Rosarian and Gagiz, yeah. you know. Equator. Latitude would be easy because it would be the equator, so yeah. that would be a that's natural it. zero. That's a okay. natural zero. Carl Monk and others Everybody would figure science. that one oh, out. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, and okay. they also, yeah, it's a natural, natural uh, based equator, which okay. they often in, in all these petroglyphs are shown, equator. So there's no doubt about it. Now, there's a, um, I think I should say here, there's a chapter on a petroglyph in Kirkado that we think is the earliest. And where's Kirkado? Kirkado is a, uh, is in Karnak in Brittany on the coast of France. And there's a, there's, you, um, it's a very old 4400 BC, but a map has been put on one of the stones at a more recent date. We don't know what, but it is a map of, we have a long article in the book about it, it and showed that it is a map of the Atlantic Ocean. Now, the interesting thing about it is that the uh, north-south lines are very clear, but the, it, the thing looks like a net thrown over a ball, laid flat. The line, the, the, so the lines curve across the rock. Grid. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's like what they're uh-huh. using is a grid that's like a fishnet. And I think that's a helpful uh, concept. Analogy, yeah. So they are able, because of the angle to the sun, to, to know where their latitudes are. And they, they know that they are sailing distances in the longitude, the east-west directions. So they just use it like a fishnet. Okay? Good and possible. so many of these monuments have a dot in the center, which might be an island, with circles around. Okay, the archaeologists call those breasts because they got a sex fetish or something around their butt. We say that those little circles, each one represent a DL or a one distance line, which would be 111 kilometers or 60 nautical miles, so that they're showing the distance that they have explored beyond an island. So that's their uh, latitude-longitude system, uh, which... Um, does not accurately measure longitudes at sea. Interesting. And you found the same petroglyph design in a number of places, haven't you? Or similar? Have you found this same petroglyph design, this map of the ocean, in a number of places? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. uh, We have uh, several, uh, in the chapter about uh, the Atlantic Ocean, are several uh, uh, maps where, especially that was, what was important to them was, of course, how to reach America. So what you see is the is the southern crossing from uh, Cape Verde Islands to Brazil. That was an easy crossing with the wind and uh, and the current in the in your back. And um, what what was also shown is the crossing via the upper north. What was an alternative crossing from uh, from England via Faroe Iceland, Greenland, and then to Baffin Island. But then we are. At 22, uh, 2200 BC, these maps are after, to be exactly after 2500 BC, what is the discovery of America via the Atlantic. Wait, pretty exciting. How big were these petroglyphs of the uh, ocean? Uh, always be? big. All these, all these ocean petroglyphs are big because they, they, uh, because these, the, the ocean was big. He, he means maybe a yard square or so. Yard That's square, big. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And one of the biggest of all uh, of these uh, remarkable petroglyphs that Reno has deciphered is the uh, are the petroglyphs at uh, De Signac, which is at the mouth of the Loire River in on the coast of France again. 
and it to the uninitiated the these uh, petroglyphs uh, look like a pile of ice axes that are piled up on top of one another they are uh, actually superimposed on top of one another so it's a very complicated very wide maybe several meters wide uh, group of glyphs or a large petroglyph center so um, <clears throat> What's interesting about that in particular is that uh, we believe that they are overlying each other because this, uh, we, these were geographic glyphs that have been added to over time. So oh. that they used the same recording technique for a thousand or two thousand years. It's a remarkable like a map that you would mark cities thing. on or locations on over time. Yeah, just well, they found new things. So new then things. they try to fit it in with this thing that uh -huh. came down from their forefathers. And so they've added new things to this. And Designac is a very remarkable uh, place. So, I mean, it must just jump out at you once you feel like here's the code that was cracked. And I understand with these lines and these uh, men hairs and everything the arrangement means, it just must be like seeing, like learning Greek and then suddenly the Greek makes sense to you. Yeah, yeah. You know, es especially because because uh, of course in the beginning you you don't know exactly and you you make an hypothesis of what it might be. But then if you if you if it's confirmed again and again, then mm -hmm. it, it gets a certain uh, you become versed in this language important and, it, and and you understand it and then finally you you start writing a book. Actually earlier I wrote a book with an archaeology uh, professor in archaeology. In, mm -hmm. in in Holland and he was very he's very enthusiastic and uh, later I wanted to write a book in English and I was happy to to meet uh, Jay uh, to to write a book especially for the American market because it's it's about America actually it's the early it history of America it is isn't and it's it? very interesting see what I think is so tragic is that we just have chopped up and discarded so many of the early megalithic sites. Oh, yeah. They were misunderstood. They were not recognized. They yeah. were handy quarries. Oh. You know, the roads come plowing oh, over. It's, it's very bad. And we think that we're devoid of all of this rich history like Europe and the rest of the world is. But actually, we weren't. We just trashed it. Yeah, it's, it's, a, in good measure. it's a pity there, there is, in Western Europe, uh, all the monuments are protected, which was yeah. very good. Also, the the, the petroglyphs are protected. That's uh, that's good. But, but there is never an explanation for a megalithic monument or of a petroglyph. There are, are mm -hmm. uh, well, about 2,000 megalithic petroglyphs and maybe uh, maybe 1,500 or so megalithic monuments, very big ones uh, among them, and they uh, nobody has an explanation for them. And what's very well, there's a lot of, offered, but nobody yeah. knows for sure. Uh, no, well, it, it, I hope it starts with this book, so uh, that that it starts uh, that people will explain it and. Uh, we need and some other researchers on the side. I mean, yeah, Reno gets so excited because he says, "Now I now I know how they were thinking." Yeah. You know, but we need other researchers and, to look at this material and count these stones also. Yeah. Gavrenes has thirty nine stones. We think it's a mine of big stones. It's built. It's a the most decorated. Are you putting uh, out the call for for further uh, researchers, and we'll give a number or a website or something to reach you so people can collaborate if they choose, and we'll come yeah. back with. Renaud de Jonga and Jay Wakefield. Their book is How the Sun God Reached America, and it's available at the Radio Bookstore at 800-243-1438 or Radio Bookstore online. And this is a big, thick book. Um, let's see, how many pages is in here? 300, um, 384, 
384 half pages. Petroglyphs and charts and maps are about half of it. And uh, we'll come back for more of this decoding of megalithic sites. I'm Laura Lee. And let's get back to our conversation with Renee de Jonga and Jay Wakefield. They're offering a whole new view of how to read megalithic sites and petroglyphs on both sides of the Atlantic. They say they're related in search of where the sun god goes when the sun sets over the west. Their book, How the Sun God Reached America, A Guide to Megalithic Sites, is a detailed account of their many years of research. Tell me a little bit about what we know about the megalithic culture. You mentioned they were good at astronomy, they were good at navigation. Uh, what years are we talking about? Yeah. Um, they didn't leave us a, a written language, so the best we can do is decode what they did leave behind. What more do we know about them? Now, we, we know that it all started about 6,000 B.C. in uh, the western side of the Mediterranean, what's called uh, the, uh, the area around the, the small Mediterranean Sea what's between um, Italy and uh, Gibraltar, that part of the um, Mediterranean Sea. And in the, the old petroglyphs, are uh, uh, the, the small Mediterranean Sea is depicted. There are, are five or six uh, 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 very beautiful petroglyphs uh, of the small Mediterranean Sea. There it all started, and then uh, it moves along the coast of uh, North A- West Africa and uh, uh, Western Europe to the north, um, well, until um, uh, Scotland, actually, and later uh, to Scandinavia, where it where the culture uh, stops at uh, 1500 BC. Hmm. Um, and it's that, that stop of the culture that coincides with the, with the, um, the full discovery of all of the, of the planet earth, of all the land on the planet earth. So it was a kind of, of mission culture, which uh, they, they wanted to, to know the, uh, the entire planet, how the planet looked like. And after that, they stopped building these uh, big stone monuments. So you're saying that they had mapped all of the the known navigable uh, world well, at yeah. some stage, and then they yeah. said, okay, now we know it, we're stopping? Is that what you're saying? No, well, basically, yeah, it's true. It's a fact that uh, that uh, the, the megalithic culture stopped at uh, 2000. I thought that uh, was due to the advancement of uh, other innovations, which would then lead us into yeah. the age of metal and... Uh, well, of course, uh, what the reason is, we, we don't know, but it coincides with the, with the discovery of all the, uh, of, of all the land on the planet Earth. And How do we know that they were able to navigate all this? Are there other further maps in, in petroglyphs? Uh, the maps in the petroglyphs and, of course, the, the fact that the, the stone monuments are also found in, in, along the east coast of North America. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the of the Olmec civilization later, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the civilization in Central America, and uh, well, all the evidence uh, shows it. Uh, so, if you can sail one ocean, you can sail the rest of them. Uh, that's true. That's true. I would suppose. Yeah. 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 Um, don't forget that the the uh, the uh, old Egyptian ships uh, of King Sahure. Uh, were were very big ships, uh, capable ocean going ships, uh, with, with and they the, showed sign of the wear and tear that could only come from being in the ocean. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sure. It's yeah. so. Uh, 
It's not a spring Ships aren't that hard to build. Uh, no, no. And actually, these uh, these uh, crossing of the the crossing of the Atlantic Ocean is relatively late compared to the ocean voyages on the on the Pacific, which are known to be be older and and longer distances relative. So uh, it's not a strange story if you if you understand uh, the sailing on the on the total planet and. Uh, have you heard of the uh, stone spheres of Costa Rica? Because uh, yeah, sure, there are researchers yeah. that believe that those were also pointing to sailing lines. Yeah, and I agree. We agree with this. Uh, with this, uh, yeah. yeah, it's a worldwide errors. system, right? And it would make perfect sense to make a map as a petroglyph. And can you imagine people sitting around and then giving navigational lectures and and uh, histories and stories and how they would pass these as mnemonic memory devices right, to right. tell the stories of their it, it ancestors was, and about it, future yeah, voyages. Yeah, sure, and it was, a vital, it was of vital importance to uh, to find the route back to their homelands. Yeah, right. so, uh, uh, so we see uh, uh, that's the reason that in, um, in New England, that is just below the, the East Cape of North America, what is Cape Race, Newfoundland. Cape Race, Newfoundland, from there... Uh, most of the Michelin builders um, uh, sailed uh, to the West Azores, which is a distance of 2,000 kilometers, uh, 1,600 miles, I believe. And uh, they sailed actually just below from Sable Island. I don't know if you know that. It is just uh, at 44 degrees north, just uh, uh, three degrees south of Cape, uh, Cape Race. They sailed from there to the West Azores. That was a, a difficult sailing, a long distance. And that, the reason of, or for instance, America's Stonehenge is the fact that from, that, that was the starting point where they sailed to the, to the Azores, to the, back to the old world. So they would need outposts in these various locales and then they would need to set up similar you know, universities, and in effect, if you're talking about monuments and recording this information in a rather permanent way and establishing schools and exchanging information, it would become like a navigational university in a sense, wouldn't it, this whole community? Yeah, we're Can dealing we guess with... At this? We're dealing largely with cultures where uh, memory is very important. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have some Higgins blood, and those people in Ireland <laughs> had to go down into caves and recite 500-line poems and... And that sort of thing. I don't have much of it in me, I don't think, because I don't have that kind of memory. But uh, what became clear in, the, in doing this book was that in some of these sites, they, since so much navigational and latitude information of their explorations and their stories are told and recorded in mathematics and numbers in these sites, which we hope mm -hmm. will be verified by other investigators, these, this information appears to be recorded to be a mnemonic device. In other words... Because, and these monuments lasted for several thousand years down through this so metacolithic period. So how better to record so this precious these are than in stone? Early essentially kind of early computers. These are devices to aid the human mind in mm -hmm. prehistory. Pre mm -hmm. And when you understand that, and the tourists are running through these monuments every day, these are in Europe, on the coast of Brittany, these are tourist sites, and in Ireland. And, and it's astonishing when you go to a site like Dalton in Ireland, and there's a bulldozer on top of it where the archaeologists are taking it apart and rebuilding it because we, we have, from measuring the stones, we know that it's a library of information based on placement of how the stones are placed. So, you know, it's, it's, it's painful to see these things taken apart and rebuilt. Because you can never recapture that information. Because the information that is so important is, mm -hmm. is being lost in some of these locations.
even in Europe, it's a, uh, you know, in the United States, it's a whole additional story because here that there's total denial that there's any megalithic sites here. They don't know what to do with Mr. Hill. And we found some other things ourselves. It's what, quite remarkable. What did you find? Because it's not, it doesn't have to be the big, glorious sites. There's a lot of smaller sites that yeah, were we, also quite we remarkable. We found uh, megalithic petroglyphs uh, ourselves in North America, in, um, in, um. Don't tell me what, exactly where. You don't want people around you facing in, them or. Oh, well, in, in Maine, we, we found, for instance, two megalithic petroglyphs, petroglyphs showing the discovery from the American coast of, of, um, of Bermuda. Bermuda which was important uh, island for their uh, return route uh, from Central America, especially to via the Azores to Europe. What are the details that led you to believe that this is a documentation of the discovery of Bermuda? It, sh- it shows the exact position of the island. I mean, that what they do is is they uh, they know it's at 32 degrees north that that they everybody knew after the discovery. So that was not important. But for that, the difficulty for these megalith builders was the east west exact east west location. Mm-hmm. So what they draw, uh, they they make a petroglyph of the of uh, um, well the coast around um, uh, Newfoundland, then uh, the, uh, the of the Antilles. Well, in the south, and then they show that uh, that uh, Bermuda is located exactly north of um, uh, what is the name of that island? Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. And that's uh. just shown in one petroglyph. And after that, we discovered uh, we discovered ourselves on top of that uh, rock that shelter? that rock shelter, um, even a complete uh, map, uh, also indicated the the uh, the distance from. Um, uh, Cape Hatteras to uh, Bermuda, which is uh, uh, slightly more than than eight uh, distance lines, what is 888 kilometers. And then, people who are familiar with European petroglyphs have frequently seen jagged lines up and mm-hmm, down. Mm-hmm. And those people say, oh, that's water. Mm-hmm. But they're also one distance line. So between the coast of, between Cape Hatteras and the dot on this chart that we found on the top of the roof shelter, there are eight of these, up, down, up, down, up, down. It's exactly the, the distance. And the okay. same thing between Iceland and Greenland on other petroglyphs. So the thing is that we've learned that by studying many sites, that it's playing like a symphony because there, we can read different stories, different places, but they, they are making sense to us now. Because there's a uniform use of the symbol to create the meaning. Yeah. But Correct. that makes sense. You know, if you were going to, I mean, how would you convey, if you had a blank slate and you say, how would I convey this? And you had a, a sphere and you had a <laughs> net over it to represent this grid, that would be the zigzag <coughs> would be a natural means of of conveying makes sense, doesn't it? It it makes sense, yeah, and and it's repeated over and over again in different sites. So um, it's it, but it is a little bit complicated that um, uh, a zigzag may mean uh, that one one up one down means mm-hmm. means one distance line, but sometimes it's also mm-hmm. ten distance lines. Okay. So, so this is on a big scale. The scale of the of the petroglyph is never indicated. Which makes sense. Yeah. Well, given the context. That yeah. You're trying given to given convey, it. So, so they uh, they um, assume that you 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 know automatically what a scale is. Actually, they assume that you can understand the petroglyph. But nobody. Well, if you're versed in a language, that would be a natural. Yeah. Ability I, that you would have. Lurley, I'd like to make a point Please. on the the uh, security of these sites, because we mentioned that we we maybe have published the first. 
uh, map uh, of Bermuda on the top of this rock shelter that's been seen. I mean, we uncovered it under, his son found it under a bunch of rocks and duff, and I have to wipe it off with my hat. And there, you couldn't really see it without putting some white sand in it to make it very clear. Because it was a fainter petroglyph than the original That's one inside the rock shelter, clever. which was Carry white maybe sand, a couple so of inches. It's an idea of Wake. But we have detailed the location of it exactly in the book. Okay. Anyone can go see. Now, I think one can take the position. Some people say, don't tell people where these things are because they'll go and deface them. But what we need, unless the public understands... It's a recognition of their importance. We need to people to see them. these sites and understand them. We need other, other people to look at our work, to go to these sites and see them. I, we need to respect other, that other people will respect the sites. It's a matter of respect. And what we are saying is that people that are interested in the subject will respect the sites. I don't think we are talking on this show to people who are going to ruin sites. So we are not afraid of that. I don't think anyone will I buy this book either, you I just heard this either, from other people who were decoding sites. And, no, and they were saying, we don't want the whole place trampled. Mm-hmm. And so I thought this was a kind of a, you know, code among petroglyph researchers. I was just trying to be respectful. I have heard it frequently, but I do not personally agree with it. Well, thank you for pointing that out. Because, and we have put maps to all the sites in the book because I think it will be helpful to bring this. So many sites are being lost from ignorance. Yeah. Uh, There are, we we have deciphered on the Neversink River up in the Catskill Mountains, a huge spiral that's tumbling into the river. It's a wonderful, wonderful petroglyph of three rivers. Drawing, and yeah. there are, have been, there are, uh, recorded, uh, history from early, from colonists in the United States that say there were similar spirals along the eastern rivers, the Susquehanna and others, yes. but dams have gone in and now these mm-hmm. things are underwater. Mm-hmm. So these sites are being lost. So confirmatory similar sites are now. I know where it's described where they are under under a, a pond behind a dam. So um, and other things. So um, I am not. A, people need to find these places. We need to make them public. We need for people to see them where we can. Now some are on private property. It may be a different subject. This thing, they, that spiral is in the middle. Of, is on the, in a river. My father went to see it, and the river, whole river was covered with snow and ice, and he couldn't find it. But in the summertime, when it's ice-free, it's easy to find, you know. Um, so we have, uh, we are not afraid of making these. Uh, we think it's, it's a good idea that people go see these sites and photograph them. It gives more re- public record. We, we hope these sites will be protected by the state. Uh the states of New York and Maine. Could you start some sort of movement? Of course, you've got to get your theory accepted first by these officials for them to say, well, gee, you know, this is an important sign. Let's uh, declare it. Well, the, generally, even the archaeoastronomers, uh, you know, are, it's usually that they die before their ideas are accepted. We're not accept, expecting this. Until there's a new generation, these ideas will not be accepted. But they are in the... We can all Amateur. Here's something beautiful to preserve, no matter what it means. That we're on the sides, along with the New England Archaeological Research Organization and others that are trying to work on these sites. So um, a lot can be done without, has to be done without official acceptance, is what we're seeing. So when you've presented your theory to, I think, University of Washington archaeologists and to the curators at uh, America Stonehenge and other places, what was the reaction? 
reaction is in general is positive because uh, especially for instance the owner of Stone America Stonehenge he is uh, 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 he, he understood his own side better I mean uh, I was able to, yeah I was able to uh, to to show him that that the center of his own site is basically a map of the of the North Atlantic Ocean uh showing uh showing the how to to reach the old world from from the site which is which is uh, uh Stonehenge it is at uh, 43 degrees north which is exactly the site of Cape Finisterre the northeast um uh, northwest point of of Iberia so you're saying um, even the location that they picked was meaningful yeah yeah i think uh, everything is uh, yeah yeah, uh, the location is uh, has some some holiness. All these locations are are in a sense holy, and um, um, well, the, uh, the reactions are positive because they uh, they all fit together. And um, for instance, um, we say that that America has been discovered twenty five hundred BC, and just this year. Uh, the oldest uh, town in Peru was discovered uh, and shown to be 20, 2600 BC, which, uh, which is very close to our our date of uh, well, well, is exactly our date of the discovery of America via the Bering Sea, because America was discovered not via the Atlantic, but mm -hmm. via the Bering Sea, actually, which is shown we, in Dissignac, shown, shown in Dissignac and in our book. How does how is it shown? It's shown in the Dissignac site. It, it, Tell us there, about that. Well, there, uh, this, this, um, uh, Ray, uh, Jay uh, told, uh, already, uh, something about it. There, what you see is, is, is a large number of Jacob staffs. Oh, that one. This, yeah. Okay. The, these Jacob staffs are, are used to measure the, uh, the degree of latitude of the of your own position. If you, the, the, it's just so that the, the smallest angle of, uh, between the polar star and the ground, it's just your latitude. It is that simple. And they measured that with such Jacob staff, the, the, the latitudes. So measured they, it with what? And what are we talking about? A, a Jacob staff. What is it? Two it's pieces of wood. It's just a, uh, two pieces of wood at right angles. And, and, uh, one side is, uh, is on the, uh, is pointed to the horizon and the other side to the polar star. Mm -hmm. And they measured then, um, the, the, the angle. On a scale on the central, uh, oh, I central see it has little cross hatches so you can yeah. see where you are on that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very old, uh, measuring instrument. And this was the symbol of, of ocean sailing. And they carved each time when they discovered an, uh, an island, mm -hmm. uh, made an important discovery in the Atlantic. They carved in that particular stone in the Signac a, uh, such a Jacob staff, uh, at a special position. And from the position, the relative mm -hmm. position in the, uh, we, uh, they, they tell the whole story, uh, uh the, the history of discovery of all the land on the planet Earth. There so it's, 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 it's the most beautiful petroglyph in Europe, basically. Wow. It's, uh, Reno meant, uh, uh, skip the word, um, tangent angles. On these, what look like ac ice axes, actually Jacob's staffs or Mediterranean signs as described in the book, it's complicated. This is a very complicated site. Mm -hmm. And in fact, his early book had 25 tables of latitude data drawn from this site. Wow. But <clears throat> the latitudes 
of, of their sailing explorations are recorded, recorded in the tangent angles from the end of the ice axe down to the bottom of the axe, all throughout the whole uh, cluster of maybe 13 of these uh, figures. Hmm. So it's a very remarkable uh, sight. How late were these particular instruments uh, used? If they're useful and they're simple, they were probably found from early on to... Uh, right. They, the, the first Jacob late. staff is, uh, is uh, 4500 B.C., and the last one is something like uh, 1900 B.C. Um, before, older, um, you see um, um, primitive maps... So before the, this period of the Jacobs, the primitive maps were used, and that was the period of just coastal navigation. Mm-hmm. They didn't need anything more sophisticated they, until they, they started yeah, venturing yeah, further yeah. and further out. Yeah. So America Stonehenge is a very big site, yeah. and one would imagine um, that it might have multiple purposes. If you're going to go to all this work of carting stones around and lifting these big heavy stones and designing this complex site, I would imagine there would be many different purposes uh, to a site, one of which would be navigational mapping and institutionalizing it and memory, setting up memory devices. Yeah, right. So um, have you collaborated with other archaeologists that maybe, you know, why couldn't we have multiple purposes uh, we, there for we, multiple we propose, theories? Fit in? Uh, we propose uh, at least one other important thing that is religion. Um, oh, the it, sun it god. Is, it is, yeah, it, it is for sure that, uh, and maybe best shown in, in Stonehenge in South England, where the, the main axis is points to the rise of the mid, the rise of the midsummer sun. If you're going to chase the sun and, across the ocean, then you also want to know where it's going to rise wherever you are and to celebrate it. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And these, these orientation on, on the rise of midsummer sun and midwinter sun is typically a religious uh, mm-hmm. thing. And we see all over uh, Western Europe these this orientation of, uh, for instance, Newgrange, which is an important site mm-hmm. in, in the east of, of Ireland. There, in, in, on midwinter day, the the rising sun shines through uh, through the back of the uh, of the huge uh, passage grave, and uh, just on a cliff on uh, one of the of the back uh, stones, mm-hmm. uh, very impressive. And that is a, that is a religious meaning. And the, and in all monuments there is always an, a really a religious meaning, besides the geographic uh, sailing meanings. We and, talked to a couple of um, petroglyph researchers who in Colorado were finding sites. These were the guys that wanted to keep them quiet. And uh, they were saying that on this one wall, you could see a number of different figures. And on the solstice, uh, the sun would kind of dance over and light each one up uh, one by one by one like an opera. So yeah. wherever the light was, was where the attention was. And it was in a sequential uh, kind of way. Laura Lee, Mystery Hill is a very complex site. And has been studied for its astronomical sight angles to the outlying men here is in great detail. I think with the University of Pennsylvania, et cetera, they've been working with the people there that manage and own the site. We have focused on uh, latitudes that are encoded in stones, counts, and in angles in the site at looking at them as, looking at these sites as geographic maps. And that site is a fact as a walk-in stone side of the ocean. Now, we have not interrelated our work with the astronomic work. In other words, there's a great amount of work here yet to be done. 
because the same men here are used for both functions. How in the world these people were able to do that is beyond us to to figure it out. It's We're not that far. We don't understand all this well enough to do that yet. I guess if it's really hard to carry these stones around, you There's have an economy of purpose, and you make them do double and triple duty. Oh, and oh, immediately, yes. oh, yes. the, the big stone yeah. immediately east from the center of at Mystery Hill uh, is... Is a very important astronomic stone, but it's also they uh, very clearly uh, representing the Azores, where they are trying to sail in the middle of the ocean. So that's just that one stone. But of course, there's maybe what 50 stones in this whole thing that we have studied. We have a 35 pages of diagnosis of this site, but we can't relate it yet very well to the astronomic. So it needs. Uh, an enormous amount of work in the future to do this. But it's to say that you're not trying to shove out any other interpretations. You're just saying, oh, yeah. here's no. another one layered yeah, into correct. it. We, we, we like more research uh, in, 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 in different directions, actually. Yeah. Because, uh, why oh. not? Yeah, we like it. We like the attention to this. Uh, we, need, we need help. That we're, we're just counting stones. We're not invoking any aliens or anything here. Now, I, I took a chapter to the University of Washington, to the anthropology department, the archaeologist. Yeah, I talked to know me. how they reacted. I, met to an, I talked to an archaeologist there, and he, he read the uh, Locru, the pictographic uh, story of Locru. And um, he said, yeah, I don't know. You know, it's not his field. He's never studied this before. He said, we're, as far as he knew, we we're the only people in the world working on this. Mm-hmm. And in truth, we've been working, what, we've got 15 years in this now? And... Archaeologists are people having trouble making a living. It's not a, a, a business. It's, it's not a way of life where you can make money very easily. And if you're having a family, they have to have a grant here and there. It, it, archaeologists are struggling people in general and can't. Uh, so this is a field where we've put in a lot of energy and it's not familiar to academic people in general. Yeah. It's a fascinating theory. And where do you go from here? Uh, we... Where we are going from here? Um, Just continue are, to try yeah, to. Yeah, we especially we want to uh, to uh, explain uh, ma- big monuments in in, for instance, in Karnak, um, where America is involved. So late megalithic monuments because they show very beautifully the uh, the uh, uh, the coast of North America, and with emphasis on Central America. It was uh, actually. Um, uh, to to a voyage to Central America was was a, a part of their religion. Uh, very like important. a pilgrimage. Yes, like a pilgrimage. It was the Holy Land at the other side of the of the sea where the where the sun sank, and um, uh, of course also a lot of trade, copper. Mm-hmm. Copper trade was very important. Uh, so brought wealth, and uh, well, this this site we want to. To show him, maybe oh, we make a new uh, book. Let me introduce you to Carl Monk's work too. He's done yeah. a lot of mathematical decoding. He's familiar correct. with his yeah. work. So, well, thank you so much. I welcome uh, you back when you next visit here. I guess a little in a couple of months to further hear more about this theory. Um, to support the navigational that we know what was going on, the archaeological data there, the diffusionism data. It's so possible and. Sun God or no Sun God, we're adventurers, so I can well imagine uh, human beings getting out and seeing what's on the other side of the, the fence or the ocean or whatever. It's just in our nature. And certainly they would want a uh, a network of navigational 
um, abilities and to pass down this information and mapping and all the rest of it. So I want to say congratulations to both of you for some really intriguing work. And their book is How the Sun God Reached America. Thanks for listening. I'm Laura Lee. This has been Conversation for Exploration, and I want to thank you for joining us on our tour around the universe at large here tonight. And join us next time. I'm Laura Lee. Laura Lee Online, www.lauralee.com.